This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. One of the first things you're going to hear in this week's Thursday Making the Business Case episode, where we focus on the big picture of deploying AI every single Thursday here on the show, you're going to hear someone say that hiring talent and working on the technicals of building out algorithms is actually the easy part of AI readiness. To some people, that'll come as a surprise, but for those of you who've been longtime listeners, it probably won't. Uh, The emphasis in this interview is going to be around how to actually identify AI opportunities. Where are those linchpin points in our different workflows and business processes where AI can be of value and how do we identify them? That's going to be relevant for everybody listening to this particular program. Whether you're a consultant, you work in an enterprise, this is a skill to master. And our guest this week is Mark Ewing. Mark is the Digital Corporate Technology Manager for R&D at Eastman Chemicals. Eastman Chemicals is based in Tennessee, and they are a over a $9 billion a year chemicals firm, so a rather substantial enterprise. So Mark has a, a vantage point within a large established company, a company that's been around for 100 years, and you're getting a bit of a looking glass as to how he's thinking about applying artificial intelligence in their company and what those lessons are in terms of their transference to whatever it is that you're working on. Um, So hopefully this is going to be useful for everybody tuned in. If you're focusing on getting started with AI, either in your own company or for your clients, be sure to download our PDF brief called Beginning with AI, sort of fundamentals of AI adoption and deployment, where we talk about some of the basics that sort of underpin this interview and other interviews about AI readiness. You can find that free PDF brief at emerj.com slash B-E-G-1. That's the number one. So B-E-G such as beginning one. So emerge.com slash BG1, and you can download that PDF brief, which will hopefully give you some useful context for this episode and future AI readiness and making the business case episodes. Without further ado, this is Mark Ewing with Eastman Chemicals here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Mark, we'll kick off with just getting your perspective on what the aspects of AI readiness are. I know a lot of enterprise leaders are sort of wondering, you know, how do we get AI ready? But there's components to that. There's different aspects to that. How do you like to break those down? Yeah. Hey, Dan, first off, thanks for having me on today. Uh, real pleasure to be here. You know, so when I when I think about AI readiness, I think there's the technical front end side of things that obviously have to be addressed. You have to have some some means, some methods of actually building the AI solution. But I think more important than that, from an AI readiness perspective, is a defined need for where AI is going to make an impact in your business. Uh, it's easy, relatively speaking, to hire talent who can come in and talk about AI. It's relatively easy to buy software that will do AI. I think where the rubber really meets the road from a readiness perspective is leadership who can look at the processes that they deal with on a regular basis and identify where there's value in having intelligent automation through AI or identifying places where there are opportunities to realize a lot of additional value from mining their data and and using the insights there to then build out AI solutions to help them make faster or better informed decisions. I think if if you don't have that part right there, everything else you're doing is building up a a framework that's not going to deliver value. And so long term, that program likely isn't going to be successful. So I completely understand the the, uh, kind of gist of where you're headed here, Mark, when you think about, I guess, what people can do to arrive at that point where where they can have a clear enough idea to to get things to be successful. What what do folks need to do, I guess, to get there to that that place you were talking about? Sure. 
I think uh, a lot of what we do is try to guide people through a journey of trying to look through the eyes of their line of business operations, right? So if we look at, for example, a logistics department in a supply chain, where are the places where they're making decisions that are based on data, but those decisions are taking a long time to make, or maybe those decisions are made inconsistently? For example, if we want to identify orders that are at risk of shipping late, what can we do to identify and prioritize the right shipments to get extra attention to ensure that we are delivering to our customers on time? Right. So looking at that, looking at our processes and saying, we have an issue of late orders. We want to address that issue. And today, what we're reliant on is supply chain analysts who manually or digging through the data, trying to figure out where's an opportunity to make an impact, right? So being able to look through and identify those, the key elements of that are you have data, you have a process today that is utilizing that data to make decisions, but that process is being done by people. And it's not necessarily being done, like I said, consistently or quickly. And so that's where the opportunity comes in for AI to be able to make a difference. Yeah. So it sounds like for you, Part of AI readiness, I guess what I'm hearing you articulate is having, I guess, functional leaders who can have their antennae up for opportunities like that, right? Because I think if you don't understand AI at a conceptual level, you're not going to be able to ask yourself, what are the data-based decisions whereby there are errors where we could leverage AI? It sounds like there's probably some, I guess, background knowledge folks would need to have that, the readiness of those antennae, for lack of a better terms. I don't know if, if I'm nutshelling this well for you. Yeah, no, I think, Dan, that makes sense. You know, obviously, uh, a functional leader would need to understand uh, where AI can make an impact, where AI can't make an impact. And I think that's essential at some level because a highly technical individual, if you bring in a, a data scientist who has a lot of ideas about where things could make a difference, they're going to have to try to be pushing that vision up the chain to get buy-in from sufficiently senior leadership to invest in that sort of an initiative. And honestly, that's a lot of work, especially for people who have just hired into a company where they may not know the politics and the ins and outs and all of the people who are involved. As soon as you have leadership who begins to have an idea and a vision of where and how AI can make an impact, that conversation shifts to a pull from the top up saying, how do we elevate the organization with what we're doing here? And so if you have those functional leaders who are primed and ready with their value cases, and then you bring in your talent, now you've got a match made in heaven of, we can take action, we can do that quickly, right? We've got the buy-in, we've got the investment, and we also have the framework for the change management that's going to be required for an AI implementation to be successful in the long run. Yeah, because I guess, you know, as you'd mentioned, if you bring in that talent without having that understanding at the top, you know, we hear about nightmare cases where, you know, people spend a lot of money to have a big data science department, but there's nobody above them that understands AI well enough to know what projects to hand them. And there's nobody in IT who understands AI well enough to actually implement what they build. And so there's a lot of kind of twiddling of the thumbs. Clearly, if, if we have business leaders that grasp the use cases that are high value, we can really take action with talent and make the most of those opportunities. It sounds like that's kind of where you're leaning here. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, if you take it back, you know, 10, 20 years and you think about building a data warehouse, right, or going back even further than that to saying like, oh, let's build a warehouse to store all of our goods, but we haven't thought about what goods are we going to make to put in there, that warehouse doesn't provide a lot of value for you. And you get to a data warehouse and 
if you're not actually collecting data, if you don't really know what data you need to collect or what you want to do with it, that data warehouse doesn't provide a lot of value. And now we get to the AI point of, you know, hey, we can do stuff with this data, but we don't really know what to do or why we would want to do it. Yeah, and clearly that's uh, not an ideal place to be. Finding opportunities would be critical. So, okay, so for you, this contextual understanding of AI from the functional leadership is is important because if we're missing that, then kind of we're going to drop all the other balls. You know, when we think about AI readiness, I, I hear other folks talking about a number of different topics, and I'm interested in what else fits under the AI readiness umbrella for you. You know, people talk about ability to access data, kind of the harmonization of data and the, the uh, you know, infrastructure in general. People talk about having a culture that's open to experimenting. There's all these different elements of what a company needs to be AI ready. You talked about business folks being able to kind of call out and find opportunities that could be high value. That's one. Um, what else for you is really important in just a company being ready? Yeah, and that's, and that's a great point. Uh, when you broaden it out like that, uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned is AI has to be data-based. So you have to have processes that have data that back them up, right? So so you're right. Access to data, uh, even more important, I think, than just the access to the data is an understanding of what generated this data. What does it mean? What are the elements of this data that we can trust, right? So do you have, do you have data governance? Do you have data lineage so that you know that a model that you build today is going to work the same next week or in a month because the data that is feeding it is consistent in its nature. That's, you know, that's essential. You talked about willingness to experiment. I think experimentation is great. And I think that there's a lot of value that can come from proof of concept, but that value is kind of short lived. I think going beyond the, the willingness to experiment is the willingness to trust data. Hmm. Uh, you know, and I say trust data because a lot of people talk about making data-based decisions, but do they really trust the data when the cards are down to the point to where if if the data says the market's going up, they say, great, then you know we're going to take these actions. And if, and if it says the market's going down, okay, we're going to take these other set of actions. Or do they at some point begin to fall back on their gut and start looking for data that confirms that gut belief as opposed to trusting the data that's supposed to be the backbone of what they do? Yeah. So, okay. Worthwhile point here. So beyond sort of a culture of innovation is a culture that can trust in data. That again, yeah, I guess where we are, it feels feels accurate to refer to that as a cultural thing. What ultimately encourages that, Mark? I mean, I, I would guess if you've run the business by not having to look at a stream of data all the time, you may want to keep that habit a rolling. Um, similarly, if data has always been messy and hard to understand, and if it's really always been pretty incomplete, and so we felt insecure about that, then that would also help to reinforce the habit of not necessarily leaning on data. What do you think are the factors that come into play to change an organization to come more and more to trusting data when the chips are down, as you said? Yeah, so... I think your first fundamental step is establishing some form of data literacy at your organization. People often believe that, that the data is the data, but the reality is the data is never just the data. It's always the data plus the story that goes along with it. And so by working to build up a, a culture of data literacy in general, where people understand what data means in different contexts and how to represent data to tell a story, and when that when that starts at again sort of that line of business and people start doing this routinely, 
then the stories and the way information is communicated up the chain begins to change from just a PowerPoint slide that has a couple of cherry pick numbers to systems that are built on on certified dashboards that that we've put enough thought into and people know how they work that that's the basis of our conversations and our decision making. Uh, moving away from an ad hoc system to to one of uh, established dashboards, you know, sort of standard reports. I, I think those are the the basic fundamentals. And at the end of the day, though, it's up to a leader in an organization to challenge the way things are done and to set an example of leveraging data consistently and appropriately to make decisions, as opposed to as opposed to asking for people to give them their gut feel, right? Or or even worse, if you are trying to set up a data based organization, punishing people for what the data says, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And if, if that doesn't really start at the top, you can only push so much from the bottom up simply because of the way that evaluation and you know, everything else works in an organization. So you, you've got to have data literacy at the bottom so that, so that everyone is enabled to use data to communicate. But then you've got to have that, that pull from the top of this is the way we're going to do things. And this is why it's important. Yeah. Okay. So data literacy at the bottom. I, I like this. And then I guess database decisions as a priority from the top or as an example from the top. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so yeah, that's, that's even maybe before we get into experimenting is just making sure that we are able to be sort of grounded in data. Um, so th these are the cultural aspects. One quick thing I'll touch on before we get into our, our next question here was you mentioned that you know data obviously needs to be accessible. We need to be able to use what we've got to be able to actually get some insights. If we want to be data literate, hopefully we'll be able to do so with our own data. It'll be findable and usable in that way. When you think about what it looks like to sort of upgrade the accessibility and the harmonization, if you will, I'm kind of making, making up words here, of the data that, that we're already sitting on, what does that often involve? I mean, does there need to be an audit process in many businesses where the business leaders and the data scientists kind of come together and think about how to how to start breaking down silos, how to start upgrading standards, how to start unifying different buckets? You know, what, what's the process that needs to be gone through to, to get AI ready for, for data? What practical steps often are going to be part of that mix? Yeah, so there's, there's the short-term answer. There's your long-term answer. Your short-term answer is that a competent data scientist should be able to work with whatever form of data engineering a company has and the relevant subject matter expert to be able to solve a problem once with data. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some effort, but it doesn't require necessarily changing anything. But the downside is that then every time you want to do a project, you're going to have to go through that same, that same effort all the time. But it's a way to get started and start providing value. While you work on your long-term need, which is data governance, uh, establishing data hierarchies, and ideally exposing all of that through a data catalog, right? Getting your data to the point to where anyone can go and simply ask, "Hey, how do I how do I find our profitability numbers?" or "Hey, how do I find our uh, our late orders?" and be able to get a clear table that says this is where that information is and this is where that information came from this is the transformation and all of the steps that it went through before it arrived at the state so that you can have people who feel confident that they're actually accessing the right data and not just data that was given a, a name that they think means something but really it doesn't got it okay so 
you mentioned long term, we have kind of the goal of determining our governance model and getting to this kind of point where we have a catalog where what we want, we know where to find, we know how it's gotten there, and we potentially have the ability to access it depending on the governance and kind of security layer there. If you could just repeat that short term step, I think a lot of people are going to have to go through that first. How would you nutshell that one again, what we could be doing in the near term before we get to the catalog phase? Yeah, if you have a data scientist who understands uh, enough about data and what it is that they're trying to do, they should be able to interface with whatever your data engineering layer looks like at your company, right? Whether you have dedicated data engineers or if you just have, you know, IT systems analysts that are, you know, storing and managing data, those two should be able to talk on a technical level about what are the technical needs to acquire this data. And then the data scientist should be able to coordinate with your your subject matter expert in your functional area to understand what does this data mean and how is this data used to make decisions. And so your data scientist should be able to then technically access the data and then translate the data that they've acquired into an actionable form by working with the subject matter expert to have a data source that they can use on a given project. Yeah. The data governance is when you get your subject matter expert and your IT analyst talking and figuring out how to make this happen all the time, right? So that you can go from two conversations to one conversation, right? And then that data is just accessible in the long term. Yeah. So instead of, so in the short term, maybe we can create a nice little sandbox where the data is organized the way we want, sorted in the way we want, prioritized in the way we want. But maybe in the long term, we'd have a way so that as soon as that information is being collected, it's already being you know, filtered and placed in, in a way where we can get the most value out of it long term. So that's just kind of happening altogether. It's not, it's not a little sandbox project. It just is the state of the data. Right. And it's, it's hard to know what that endpoint needs to yeah, look like. It, it is. Experimentation. It is. If you try to, if you try to tackle that data governance problem on step one, you're probably going to solve the problem the wrong way and discover that you have to redo all of that. Plus, you may have a hard time finding your ROI on that activity, as opposed to if you can come in and, and demonstrate, hey, if our data looked like this, right, and, and if we could roll that out to other areas, this is the return we've seen from the work that we've already done, and use that to justify and validate the work that you're doing from a data governance perspective. Yeah, okay, got it. Um, so to some degree that the sandboxing and the little projects, these have to come first, because we learn a lot of hard lessons in those little pockets, and then we determine, okay. Here's how it, here's how we need to organize the data to get value out of it. Rather than trying to assume that on the front end and then using the data, that could be incredibly wasteful. Yes. Okay, cool. Note taken on that one. So question, I guess, on your side, you know, when, when you think about, you know, there's a lot of functional leaders that are going to be tuning into the program here, and they're kind of looking at their own business and sort of wondering, how AI ready are we? You know, where do we stand? You know, you and I have talked about a lot of things here. We've talked about kind of a, a kind of culture. We've talked about some individual skills and bits of knowledge that, that subject matter experts could have. We talked about the technical state of data and how we can gradually begin upgrading that to a more quote unquote AI ready phase. You know, there's somebody who's a head of compliance, head of marketing, maybe a CEO of a company. They're listening in and they're they're kind of wondering, how, how do we get a benchmark of where the heck we stand? What are your rules of thumb there? You know, if, if you were talking to folks that are in the C-suite and they're trying to get a sense of, of where they stand, what would be a good way of doing that? Yeah, I think the, the first thing is, how much Excel are you using to run your business? Yeah. And I say that a little tongue in cheek, but the reality is a lot of businesses are run on Excel 
And the problem with Excel is you will never have data governance on that. You will never have any kind of data lineage. You may not even be able to find all of the data that's used on a routine basis to be able to make decisions. So if you want a real rough rule of thumb, how much are your line of business analysts or your managers or your directors relying on Excel or PowerPoint to make decisions? Yep. Now, the less you have of that and the more you have of people who are using systems, that's a great indication that your data is being stored systematically in some form that would enable you to take advantage of that. It also means that you have consistency between the people who are doing, they nominally have the same role. There's consistency in the way they work because they use the same system. So, you know, for example, if you're the head of marketing and all of your marketing activities are managed through salesforce.com, for example, that's great because you know your data is in a, in a singular, consistent form. And that's a great starting point for any kind of project that you want to be working on. Got it. So one benchmark could be, yeah, how much of your entire business is being run out of Excel versus kind of specialized ways of, you know, keeping, governing, orchestrating data. So there's a right. conti- there's a continuum there. We run everything on Excel or we're done with that. So there's there's a bit of a continuum to think about there. So that's that's a useful one. Is there also one for the business context? You know, we talked about having business leaders who can look and say, oh, here's where a decision is being based on data and it could be improved. Or, you know, oh, here's a use case that I know is very common in our sector that I think could be low-hanging fruit and uh, I've identified it. You know, in order to do that, we need to learn something. Are there are there any kind of benchmarks for readiness within kind of the the skills or knowledge side, you know, ways to kind of get a sense of where, where we stand, where leadership stands? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So, you know, I think when when you start looking at that side of things from an organ, you know, for an organization, part of it's going to be how willing is the organization to, or, you, or do they, do you have examples of a willingness to automate steps in your process? Have you seen Have you seen that either through RPA? Or through people who are being proactive and saying, hey, you know, we can, I can do this little thing right here and automates these steps, right, and kind of gets us through some of this work here. You know, at the end of the day, AI, when it's not in an ad hoc form, when it's in in a deployed form, is helping make decisions, right? It's getting to that prescriptive layer of, of maybe even taking action for you. So have you seen a willingness in your organization to adopt those types of activities and behaviors, maybe without it having to necessarily be AI specific. But do you also have do you have people who are who are raising the questions of why isn't this easier? Can't we do something to make this easier? Right? If you've got people asking those questions, that would suggest a, a level of change readiness that could be willing to accept AI coming in and making a difference in their organization. Yeah, okay. So yeah, it's maybe the the sort of barometer is have we all accepted the stodgy bits of the business here? Or do we see an eagerness to conquer them with whatever the latest tech is that's going to give us an edge and being able to sort of see where we shake out on that kind of a continuum? Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're the kind of organization that prefers things to be done the way they've always been done, then, you know, you're probably not as AI ready as uh, you might want to be. Yep. There's probably no uh, no better no better wrap up quote than that, Mark. So I appreciate that one. I think essentially everybody's going to have to agree with that. Um, so anywho, Mark, I know we're, we're right up on time, but I really do appreciate you being able to carve out some time and chat with us here on AI and industry. Hey, yeah. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.
So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. We've been putting more and more emphasis on getting unique enterprise perspectives, big multi-billion dollar companies, what they're doing, how they're thinking about AI, what they're up to. We had the head of AI of US Bank. We just had Eastman Chemicals. We've got some great bigger companies moving forward. These are often the harder interviews to secure because of course there's a lot of red tape about getting companies to talk about what it is that they do with AI. But I know that you, the listeners, have enjoyed it. And in fact, we've gotten some great recent reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you find, if you type in AI and Business Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, we've gotten a, a flurry as of late, which I'm super grateful for. And it's making me more and more motivated to get these big leaders within large multi-billion dollar firms to share their perspectives, because I think this is some of the material that's really resonating most with those of you. So I really appreciate those of you that have dropped reviews. Dan Barry was our latest review. He says, very informative for anyone interested in the 411 on AI data science and ML, unique guests with different insights in every episode. Highly recommend subscribing to the other Emerge podcast. So big thanks to Dan for a five-star review. Um, this is literally just a day before this interview goes live here that this this review was posted. If you've enjoyed the show, check us out on Apple Podcasts. It's just the AI and Business Podcast. Drop us a five-star review and let me know what you enjoy most. It is your feedback that has brought us to three episodes a week. It is your feedback that has moved us to more and more big enterprise players really sharing their high-level perspectives within large companies. And it's going to be your feedback that molds the future as well. So I value all of our reviews and all of your comments on LinkedIn. Some of you have been messaging me on LinkedIn for years with different ideas and what you like, and, and I value that a ton. So feel free to drop a review if you enjoyed this or, or pop me a note on LinkedIn if you've got ideas for future episodes. And otherwise, make sure to stay tuned. We're going to be getting back into AI use cases on Tuesday. So stick around and I'll catch you here on the AI and Business Podcast.